If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we continue our study in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we will be reading verses 36 through 41. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. The Word of God reads in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you, O Father, would help us illumine our minds, grant to us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that I've grown up in the church, another church, And when I was in college, I was growing in the Lord, and I knew it was my responsibility to help those who were younger than I to also grow in the Lord. And so my friend Adam, who's here, and I started a Bible study with some high school students, high school guys, and we rounded up four, maybe five of these guys, and we would meet in the choir room, and we would have Bible study. Well, one day, we're trying to lead a Bible study or discussion, I can't quite remember, when one of the boys said something to another boy across the way, that second boy shot back a smart remark, to which the first boy said something back, the next thing you know, tempers are flaring, fists go flying, and their fight breaks out in Bible study. I never did know if the parents had any thoughts about their son coming home and what they might have told them about what they were doing. I can imagine the conversation, perhaps seeing some bloody lip or something like that. Where'd you go tonight? Bible study with Adam and Joe. We were studying Paul and Barnabas tonight, or Yodia and Syntyche. I don't remember what. I'm sure that They weren't beaten up that bad, actually, but the boys kept coming. And sad to say, that wasn't the only fistfight I saw as a teenager growing up among other boys at church. I must have witnessed at least uh, two, maybe three other fistfights on the church grounds going up in that time. But the reason I say that is Because when I say I think our high school boys are great, I really mean it. 
happy to tell all you parents, never has there been a fistfight at LHBC in our history here. But conflict between people is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. No one escapes conflict. People fight with their husbands. People fight with their wives. People fight with your siblings, your brothers and your sisters. They argue with their bosses. They fight with their neighbors. They fight with the government. Our government fights. No one escapes conflict. Even the godliest of people will have their differences which can occur and there can be severe conflict. As long as we live in a world that is sinful, as long as we live in a world that is full of people who are fallible, there will be conflict. And that is what we see here today in this text. A conflict that is recorded in the pages of Scripture for all of eternity for us to read about. A conflict between two missionaries who risked their lives in the first missionary journey to share the gospel. A conflict between one who would go on to write nearly half of the New Testament and another who had a sterling reputation among the church in the early church. A conflict in which one will go and ride off into history as perhaps the greatest missionary aside from Jesus, and another who will go off into the pages of Scripture and nothing else is said about them. A conflict that begins with a good plan and good personnel ends up with great, great and sharp conflict. And so today, from this conflict, I hope to present to you some practical advice on handling and resolving conflict in our lives, because it will come to you and I if you're not embroiled in some conflict already, because it is so very common of a problem that we face. So let's look at the ministry plans that are here in verse 36. It says in verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Paul and Barnabas were off of the Jerusalem council. They had come back from the Jerusalem council. They were fresh. They were energized. They were happy that they could bear the great news to the Gentiles and say to these Gentile believers in Pisidian Antioch and say to them, no, you do not need to be circumcised. No, you don't need to follow the Old Testament law, the Old Testament Mosaic law. No, it's fine, you don't need to do any of that to be saved or sanctified. The Jerusalem Council simply asks that you would refrain from a few practices that bring great offense personally to the Jewish brethren. It doesn't have anything to do with your salvation, but do this because you want to have unity and love. That was going to be the purpose, not out of legalism. And so they rejoiced at the news. And they came off of that And some days later, whatever indeterminate period it says, they had these plans. They had these plans in verse 36. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of God. Wonderful plans to go back to Cyprus or Salamis and Paphos, to go sailing to the Asia Minor area and Pamphylia, and to go up into Galatia and visit Iconium and Lystra and Perga and Adelaide. All they wanted to do was visit these brethren to see how they were doing. And such an important aspect in terms of missions work that is very, very key. And it is important for us, too, as people come to know Christ, to do that, which is to go back and see how are they doing, to follow up with them. 
He wasn't a flash evangelist who would drop in and and be able to say, look at how many churches I planted, or want to say, look at how many people came to know the Lord, or tell wonderful stories. He wanted to see how they were doing because he was more more concerned about making disciples than he was about the number of converts. Paul genuinely cared about God's people. He genuinely cared about God's agenda, not his own reputation, not his own agenda. He had a genuine love for people, just like parents do. Parents have a concern for their own children. How are they doing? Are they doing well? If not, how can we encourage our child? Paul wanted to follow up with him. All of these people who had come to know the Lord in various cities, critically, critically important Especially if you can remember, as soon after many of these people had come to Christ in each of these cities, they saw the Apostle Paul as he weathered the storm of an uprising of the Jews, and sometimes he was driven out of the city, sometimes he was stoned, sometimes he had to leave at night or whatever it was to escape the mistreatment or the plans of the Jews and how they must have been perhaps discouraged that maybe that might come to them. Whatever it was, Paul laid these good plans to go and visit and encourage the brethren to follow up on how they were doing. Secondly, he had a good team. He and Barnabas. He and Barnabas and his ministry personnel, verse 37. The two of them wanted to go back. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. John called Mark, sometimes you'll see it's sometimes called John Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to the work. Now Barnabas, as you recall, he was a very reputable man. His name means son of encouragement. We met him in Acts 4 when he gave a generous donation to the church, and then we meet him again in Acts chapter 9 where he... Again, uh, he goes before the uh, leaders of the church to vouch for Saul's conversion. That was Paul's name before as well, or also known as Paul. He had a strong reputation. Acts 11.24 tells us, For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was a tremendous man who had a great reputation, and he wanted to take along his cousin. That's who John Mark was. Colossians 4.10 tells us that. But when they were in Pamphylia, back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, they had gotten to Pamphylia. It was at the base of this mountain's range before they were to climb the mountain and go to the area of Galatia, higher elevation. The Bible tells us that John Mark went and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't tell us why he did that. He could have gone back because, well, maybe he... Maybe the glow of mission's work had, uh, had uh, faded, or maybe somebody who was sick he knew and he had to go to Jerusalem. Whatever it was, he left. And Paul views that incident in Acts 13.13 13 as desertion. He views it as desertion. And there was conflict that began to brew among these godly ministry leaders. That is one of, the most area, one of the most common areas, actually, of conflict in the ministry. It is among Christians who are serving together, even in leadership. 
In fact, church leadership dynamics are one of the most common conflicts that exists in the church. Some of the more common differences that occur in churches and their leadership are over theological disagreements. Sometimes there are convictions that are so strong that one party cannot concede or submit and one staff member decides to leave. Sometimes there are generational differences. You have an older pastor and you have a young, new, vibrant worship leader and then suddenly there's a difference in the music that they like or the use of technology or the clothing that they wear. Sometimes there are differences among staff in communication. Conflict often happens because of unclear or sometimes non-existent communication or lack thereof and late when it comes, causing confusion and anger. Sometimes it comes during, uh, among leaders because one or more have soapbox issues. Someone has come out of a particular background perhaps or they have a particular conviction that is very strong in a particular area and that issue becomes so dominant it brings judgment or divisiveness in the atmosphere and then the leadership becomes divided. Sometimes it can occur because of micromanagement. Power, control from leadership can cause fractures among those who serve underneath them. There are many issues that can cause division among leaders, among those who serve, among people who love the Lord genuinely. And here is Paul and Barnabas with an issue that divides them, and it was over personnel of who would accompany them to the mission field. Should Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, come along or not? It would be a mistake to assume, you see, that godly leaders always should be able to work together no matter what their beliefs, no matter what their convictions, or no matter what their personalities. And that is why many times on mission field teams or other good team dynamics, pastoral teams, staff teams, whatever you might have, There needs to be the ability to work together and resolve conflict in a way that pleases God because there will be division or there will be discussions in which there there will be conflict and there can be division that occurs. It's obvious that Paul and Barnabas, who had been through so much ministry together, risked their lives together for the gospel, they supported one another in their first missionary journey, now experience conflict, it is a sad, sad narrative that is here. As we look at the conflict itself, verse 39, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." This was not some small disagreement. In fact, that Greek word there that is used for this sharp disagreement, it communicates this idea of a, of a violent action or strong emotion. It wasn't a friendly, well, that's what you think, and I guess I differ, etc. It was a turbulent departure. This was a sharp disagreement, and I'm sure stayed with them for the rest of their lives. A real turning point. Some of the church's greatest leaders have been difficult people. Martin Luther, in a self-evaluation of himself, said, quote, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, 
and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. Well, I can imagine what it might be like working alongside of him. There was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas decided then to take his cousin John Mark, and they sailed away to Barnabas's home, Cyprus, in which I'm sure they would continue the ministry there. And it's sad to say that in this narrative, as he sails off to Cyprus, this is the last we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts, although he's mentioned sort of as a footnote at the end of some letters. But Barnabas as a major figure in the scriptures is no longer, whereas Paul, he leaves with Silas to begin the second missionary journey. At the end of Paul's ministry, however, it's important to note that he had a change of heart related to John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. In 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Only Luke is with me. And 2 Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote. It was the last letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote it, and he was a, a dying man who was writing to his protege, Timothy, in which he says this in chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. The heart of Paul changed towards John Mark as he ended his life, asking Timothy to bring along John Mark with him. He's useful. He saw him in a different light. But for the time being, Barnabas and John Mark left for Cyprus in a sad departure. But on the other hand, Silas became Paul's ministry partner being committed, it says, by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And one might infer that this send-off, being committed by the brethren, was similar to what they had done for Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And one might infer from that that as they were committed off into the mission field, that the church looked upon Paul and Silas favorably, that perhaps one might surmise that Barnabas should have submitted to Paul's leadership and authority and given deference to his leadership rather than divine. But the Bible doesn't provide for us a clear verdict of who was right or wrong. But nonetheless, Silas, whom God brought as Paul's ministry partner, was a powerful minister. Our Kent Hughes notes, Silas brought to Paul's ministry some ingredients that Barnabas did not have. He was a Roman citizen. He was a prophet. He probably spoke Greek, and he served as Paul's stenographer, which he helped to write in 1 Thessalonians. Although Barnabas was a great loss, Silas was a great gain. Meaning that sometimes God, even through conflict, brings a redeeming silver lining to the situation. And they continued on, traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's what verse 41 says. In all, conflict can occur between any two people, even godly individuals. In Philippians chapter 4, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he mentions two women in verses 2 and 3. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, my true companions, a true companion, I ask you also to help these women 
who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Here they were, there's two women serving together. They were Christians. They were serving for the cause of the gospel, but they didn't get along. Conflict can occur between any people who are serving in the Lord's church, who are sinful people as we all are. James tells us about quarrels and conflicts in James chapter 4 when he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, many times it occurs because of our own sin. In fact, that's where it generates this conflict and many times we can only see things from our point of view. I thought this morning in light of the main thought of this passage, though, to provide for you some very practical principles in resolving conflict as is illustrated here in the case of Paul and Barnabas. Helpful things that have come out of a previous study that our church had in Sunday school called Resolving Everyday Conflict. Material developed by Peacemaker Ministries, written by Ken Sandy, headed by him over decades of ministry of how to resolve conflict. Because all of us, I'm sure, would like to have a conflict-free life. And we want peace. So he gives four guiding principles of peacemaking, which are in your bulletin and are listed there. First is glorify God. The second is get the log out of your own eye. Thirdly, it is to gently restore. And fourthly, it is to go and be reconciled. The first practical principle in resolving conflict among people is To ask the question, how can I please and honor God in this situation? How can I glorify God in this situation? In other words, many of us look at conflict and we see it as terribly negative. And there's a sense in which it is negative. Some people avoid it altogether. And I'm sure you can think of some situation of conflict in your life. Maybe it's some argument. Maybe it's some disagreement. Maybe it's an outright fight that you've had. And it's in those times how we choose to respond will be very telling. We can choose to respond in a very godly manner or we can choose to respond to that conflict in a very ungodly manner. We can view, as encouraged here, this conflict as an opportunity an opportunity to bring glory to God. Ken Sandy writes, quote, Serving others in the midst of conflict is a powerful way to teach and encourage others by your example. Whenever you are in conflict, there will often be many more people watching you than you realize. If you succumb to sinful emotions and lash out at your enemies, others will feel justified in doing the same. But if you respond to those who wrong you with love and self-control, so many people could be inspired by your example. This is particularly important if you are a parent or grandparent. Your children constantly observe how you handle conflict. If you are defensive, critical, 
unreasonable, and impulsive, they are likely to develop the same behavior. But if you breathe grace, your children will be encouraged to imitate you. What they learn about peacemaking from you may have a profound impact on the way they handle conflict at school, in the workplace, and in their own marriages, unquote. That is so true to life because in counseling you learn that much of our behavioral responses to conflict are copied from others. If we deal with conflict by fighting, by slandering, by suing, by abusing someone else, well, don't be surprised if our children or others who see us are encouraged to do the same. Or if we deal with it by escaping, by drinking, by ignoring, by running away, by stonewalling and say, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, everything's fine. We model for them too. That's how to deal with conflict. It's no wonder why there is a statistically higher rate of divorce from children of divorced parents because they've been able to see that, well, the solution is you run away from difficult marriages. But if we choose to respond in a godly and a conciliatory and graceful manner, well, despite how others are acting, we have the pleasure of God and we have the potential to lead and guide our children and others in how to respond to difficult situations because God uses conflict in our lives. God uses conflict in our lives to shape us into a Christ-likeness that we would not have the opportunity to do perhaps in that situation otherwise and to lead others to respond in the same way. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, whatever then You eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So the question when you come to conflict is, how can I bring glory to God by my response to this conflict? Secondly, get the log out of our own eye. The question that we ask is, how can I I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? And the key passage comes from Matthew 7, and I'm sure it's very well known to many of you. It says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day were really quick to see the faults of others, were easily those that would see the speck in someone else's eye and with glaring hypocrisy they would point it out and be judgmental in doing so. What's interesting is the vast majority of the time when people come for counseling, their focus is on the fact that someone else is the cause of the problem. Someone else and what they have done. And if I could help change someone else, well, that would solve our problem. Minimizing their own responsibility and maximizing the responsibility and the faults of others. Well, that's the human sinful tendency, isn't it? To see the speck that is in someone else's eye. And people do it in various ways that are somewhat subtle. For example, when they tell a story about the conflict or the incident, they perhaps sometimes conveniently leave out incriminating details. 
or events and accounts are often not objective but slanted to place themselves in a better light without completely showing the entire story. Or when taking responsibility, it comes out perhaps sometimes as an overemphasis on their own good quality, such as, my problem was that I was just too patient. Or I was too loving and giving, and I enabled them to do what they did. Or I gave them too much. Pride, you see, causes us to see our own sinfulness, not to see our own sinfulness, and we often see the faults of others so much worse. Pride says they need to change, not me. We, when often it is us who needs to change. Me, you, we all need to change. And that's why God has granted to us parents. God has granted to us a spouse. God has granted us the honesty of children who often see and help us to see what is really in our own heart because many times they're not afraid to point out the log that is in our own eye. And how we hate to have that pointed out to us, don't we? The truth of the matter is, as much as we want others to change, we cannot make them change. God will cause them to change, but instead of the focus being on changing them, our desire ought to be that we need to see our own fault and desire to change. People have a hard time with that, changing, because of our own pride. And so, instead of changing, people make threats, people will manipulate, people will abuse, people withdraw, people will do all sorts of things. So the other person changes, rather than looking inward and saying, Lord, what, it is, what is it that I need to do to change my own heart, that I might have joy and sufficiency, relying on you and your word, that I can find my joy and fulfillment in who you are and what you have given to me, how faithful you have been, and I can rejoice in that. Once we realize and discover our own sins, it's our responsibility then, when we see the log that is in our own eye, to ask God for his forgiveness, as well as the other party for forgiveness. Even though we may think that they are the primary problem, that if they would only do this, but yet it is our part to say. It's not mere recognition of that log that is in our own eye, but, and it is not a mere apology, but the asking of forgiveness, having seen our own sin and our part in that. So let me share with you some aspects of what it means to confess our own sin to another individual. Confession of one's own sin involves several aspects, and I'll just point out a few. There are many, but confession of sin to someone else once you see the log in your own eye involves specifying the offense, the hurt, and addressing everyone who is involved. Not just the person who was offended, but everyone who sees Specifying the offense, specifying the hurt, and addressing everyone who's involved. As an example, I remember a couple of months ago, I had said something to someone, and it was an ill-timed comment that they laughed at. And uh, later on that week, it was, a, it was during fellowship time, and later on that week, the Lord brought it to mind that that particular comment was not kind 
I also remembered that there was someone who was standing behind that individual who had obviously, at least I think, had heard what I had said. And so near the end of that week, I knew what I needed to do, and I wrote a note. I wrote a note specifying what I had said. I acknowledged that I had done wrong, and I asked for that person's forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And I cc'd the person who had overheard that comment because I wanted them to know that I was wrong and I needed to make things right. Well, it was to my relief that neither of them had taken offense at it, but it was good for my own heart to do that, to confess, to ask for forgiveness, and to let those who may have heard know. So whether you display a poor attitude before your children or publicly offend or offend a group of people, confession involves specifying the offense and addressing everyone who is involved. Secondly, confession also accepts the consequences and a willingness to change. Confession also accepts the consequences with a willingness to change. It's one thing to say, I'm sorry, but another thing to say, I'm sorry, what can I do to make it right? What can I do to make it right? Simply because there may be forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences. Someone throws a ball through your window and breaks it, they simply can't say, I'm sorry, and walk away. A truly repentant attitude says, I broke your window, it was wrong, what can I do to pay for it? As an example, many of you know these days, communication happens via email. And communication in writing is always challenging. I've never been a great writer, nor do I consider myself a great writer, but many years ago, Many years ago, I remember writing a response to someone here at church in an email such that they were very offended. I can't quite remember what I wrote, and, but I do remember that they were offended. They were not happy with what, how I had communicated or what I had communicated. And it was obvious to me, too, that it was not good and I had messed up. So I, of course, made it up to them. But I also decided that, you know what I needed to do? I needed to become better at communication. So I enrolled in a class at Bellevue College in business communication. I paid for it with my money. I sat in that class for a whole quarter so that I could learn how better to communicate. Do I still fail? Yes, I do. Do I still have difficulty sometimes at not communicating well, especially via email? Sure, I do. But I had to accept the consequences with a willingness to do what it would take to make it right. And that was an example of things that I had to learn and the Lord had to teach me. Thirdly, communication or confession, I should say, involves not making excuses such as if, but, or maybe. Not making excuses such as if, but, or maybe. Poor confessions blame the other person, saying things such as, well, I'm sorry I blew up at you. If only you had not said that thing in the first place. Or maybe you could wake up at 6 a.m. for family prayer. I wouldn't be so upset. Whatever it is, it doesn't make an excuse or blame others for your actions. It just accepts the responsibility of what you've done. Genuine confession involves all those things. Admitting what's wrong, specifying it, Addressing all that's involved, asking for forgiveness, taking responsibility, 
And when we do that, it opens the door for a renewed relationship. You see, many of you know what is more commonly known as the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? Well, in peacemaking, somebody coined a little idea that's called the golden result in peacemaking. The golden result says this, as the person who coined it says, the golden result says that people will usually treat us as we treat them. If we blame others for a problem, they will usually blame in return. But if we say, I was wrong, it's amazing how often the response will be, it was my fault too. Is there something that perhaps you can think of in which you need to change in your own life to confess to somebody else maybe that you have offended, to specify what you have done and to ask them for forgiveness? Somebody that has something that, well, they've been offended by. Despite how they may respond, it's still our responsibility to take the log out of our own eye. Thirdly, not only do we glorify God, not only do we get the log out of our own eye and see our own faults, but thirdly, our responsibility is to gently restore. This is the other side of the coin. To ask, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict? How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 tells us something. It says, Brethren, even if someone or even if anyone is caught in any trespasses, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If anyone's caught in a trespass or a sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You know, resolving conflicts does include helping others take responsibility for their part, responsibility of, uh, of how we share with them. Uh, often in the golden response, it opens the door, as I mentioned, to good communication, and it begins with admitting and confessing our own sin, and then it involves a gentle and loving approach to restoration. The Bible says there in Genesis, Galatians 6.1, it says, you who are spiritual, and that refers to those people who are walking in the Spirit. It doesn't refer to the most godly people. It doesn't say that, well, you who are leaders in the church, you're the one who's supposed to fix all the problems. It doesn't mean that. It means you who are spiritual, who are walking a Spirit-filled life, and you're trying your best to walk the Christian life, you who are spiritual, you are the one. If anybody, you see anybody in trespass, you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore there is key. It refers or is used to mending a broken bone or you reset a dislocated joint. That's how it's used. And it's incredible. When you dislocate your shoulder, you dislocate some part of your body, there's incredible pain that you feel. And your movement is restricted. And you hear somebody who has a dislocated shoulder, they're cradling their arm because they can't move it. And they get into a position where, okay, it feels better. But if you move it or touch it or whatever, there's incredible pain, isn't there? When that joint or dislocated joint is reset, when they push it back into place, there's more pain for a short period of time. 
incredible pain. They cry, tears come out. It is so very painful. But then a short while later, there's incredible freedom of movement of that arm or that joint, and the pain dissipates. And so, too, that is the picture of helping someone with a motive of gentleness and love in a way that is godly, somebody who is not walking with the Lord. It will be painful, but in due time there is great freedom because then they're able to live for Christ free from being caught in any sin. And approaching people is always a difficult thing to do. It is never easy. Might I suggest that if you're ever going to talk with someone or or communicate with somebody about something that is negative, might I suggest that it is better to talk with them in private rather than sending them an email? Because talking about something negative allows for clarification of least amount of miscommunication and the tone and the thoughtfulness that comes across is something that is hard to do when you write a note. If you want to compliment somebody and encourage them about something good, then write in a note that we can read it over and over and over again, you see, and feel good. Something that is negative, though, might I encourage you to just sit down and talk with them. After all, it's not right, nor is it wise, to say, well, you know what, I'm supposed to confront them, and you drive your own Mack truck into their life. Because the Bible gives us plenty of examples of tactful approaches. When Jesus talked with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, he didn't go and say, look, lady, you know why you're coming in the middle of the day? It's because you're ashamed and you've got X number of husbands and you really shouldn't be doing this. In fact, the husband you're living with now is not even your husband. And he didn't drive, you know, he asked her questions. He asked her questions and offered her life, water that will fill her soul. And she came to know Christ, I believe. Jesus used parables in order to help point to people's sin. Or Paul, when he approached the unbelievers, in the Athenians, he talked to them something about that they had in common. There are good and wise ways to approach others. There are also poor and hurtful ways to confront. Gordon MacDonald, in Leadership Journal, writes an article When bad things happen to good relationships, and he shares the story about a couple of longtime friends that he has who, at this point, are probably in their mid-90s, Dr. Paul and Edith Reese. When they were in their 90s, he writes, McDonald asked them if they still fought after 60 years of marriage. This is how the account goes. Oh, Sure we do, Dr. Reese responded. Yesterday morning was a case in point. Edith and I were in our car, and she was driving. She failed to stop at a stop sign, and it scared me half to death. So what did you do, MacDonald asked. Well, I've loved Edith for all these years, and I have learned how to say hard things to her but I must be careful. Because when Edith was a little girl, her father always spoke to her harshly. And today, when she hears a manly voice speak in anger, even my voice, she is deeply, deeply hurt. But Paul, MacDonald said, Edith is 90 years old. 
Are you telling me that she remembers a harsh voice that many years ago? She remembers that voice more than ever, Reese said. Donald asked, So how do you handle that driving situation from the other day? Ah, he said. I simply said, Edith, darling, after we've had our nap this afternoon, I want to discuss a thought I have for you. And when the nap was over, I did. I was calm, she was ready to listen, and we solved our little problem. MacDonald concluded, These are the words of a man who has learned that conflict is necessary, can be productive, but must be managed with wisdom and grace. By the time I reach 90, I hope to be just like him." Unquote. It reminded me of Proverbs 25.11, which says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. There is a right time, a right place, a right manner in which words of confrontation, for lack of a better term, may be shared, in which it will be received so much more easily. We bring glory to God. We take the log out of our own eyes. We gently restore, as Galatians tells us, and the last we go and be reconciled. The question we ask is, how can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to the conflict? How can I determine, demonstrate a forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? There are two parts in every conflict that need to be addressed. Two parts in every conflict. One is the resolution of the problem, and two is the reconciliation of the relationship. A godly response will address not only resolving the problem, but also reconciliation of the relationship, and both are important. It is easy to resolve a problem, but hard many times to reconcile the relationship. When a couple, for instance, goes to court because of a divorce, the judge can and will resolve the problem of dividing up the assets, of determining custody of the children. Oh, that's not hard. He just makes a declaration. But he will not be resolving or reconciling the marriage relationship. When someone is offended and they just decided, well, I'm just going to switch my job or quit or whatever it may be, effectively running away, well, that solves their problem. But it doesn't reconcile the relationship. And the Bible tells us to be reconciled. Even when you realize someone else has something against you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, a key passage you might note, tells us, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, you've come to worship, and you there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Before you come to worship, if you remember and the Lord brings to mind, someone has something against you. It doesn't say that they're completely justified. It doesn't say that they're right. It says if they have something against you, you leave and you go and you reconcile with your brother, and then come and present your offering. Ken Sandy writes about what reconciliation means. Being reconciled does not mean that the other person who offended you 
must become your closest friend, what it means is that your relationship will be at least as good as it was before the offense occurred. Once that happens, an even better relationship may develop. Reconciliation requires that you give a repentant person an opportunity to demonstrate repentance and regain your trust. This may be a slow and difficult process, and especially when the person has consistently behaved in a hurtful and irresponsible manner, unquote. How often has that happened? Maybe a neighbor or a coworker, maybe a relative, has consistently behaved in a hurtful and responsible manner, and yet our desire is to be reconciled. You don't want to have a life where you leave behind a trail of broken relationships that have been unreconciled, people you've offended or people you have said things against, people who have been hurt by you. And so the question is, do you? Can you think of someone who has something against you this morning, even as you come to worship? Have you tried to reconcile your relationship with them? The question that often comes up is, well, what do you do if you try and they don't want to be reconciled? What if they throw up their arms? What if they ignore you? What if they avoid you? What if they don't want to talk to you? What if you ask them for forgiveness and they yell at you? Well, Romans 12:18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you. In other words, Romans 12, 18 says you do your part. You tried and go and be reconciled. You ask for forgiveness. You admit your own fault. You go and you realize however many people that you have done this against, well, you do that part and you then, no matter how they respond, can walk in good conscience and walk in peace knowing that God is pleased. That is what is encompassed in reconciliation. And Lord willing, there will be forgiveness. Forgiveness where people genuinely offer forgiveness. Forgiveness is when we decide, we make a decision that we will not hold it against someone else. Forgiveness means that we will not be continuing to repeat it either in our minds or to others. Forgiveness means that it is something that we will not stew over, brood over, because that is what forgiveness entails as Colossians 3.13, Paul writes to that church, bearing one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Because the unforgiving individual is the one who puts themselves in a prison. They, as it's been said, burn the bridge over which they themselves must cross. The unforgiving person has forgotten how much God has forgiven them. The unforgiving individual has forgotten how much they have offended God. So, have you forgiven others who have offended you? Or do you stew over it in your mind's eye and hold it against them? This situation with Paul and Barnabas, we realize there can be very, very hard difficult division and offenses that come even between the godliest of people that bring pain and heartache and even people who have worked and served together. But in the middle of conflict, God brings opportunity, an opportunity to bring glory to Him, 
an opportunity to see that our own faults are this log that is in our own eye. And yet, we don't stop there because it's an opportunity to help mend the hurt and help others with the splinter that might be in theirs by lovingly restoring, putting that joint back into place so that pain is no longer there. And then to experience true reconciliation, not just resolution of the problem, but reconciliation of the relationship. That is what God desires. After all, He has come so that we could be reconciled to Him. Perhaps the Lord might bring to mind someone in your own heart and mind that you need to be reconciled with. And maybe you've never taken responsibility for your own part. Maybe you've never asked them for forgiveness, even though you may feel that they are in the wrong, or maybe you've solved all your problems by just ignoring or moving away. I don't know what the situation is. Maybe it's even been many, many years. But don't leave behind a trail of broken relationships. Instead, even many years later, you can contact them, and what a testimony that would be for them to hear how much God has taught you. God is a God of reconciliation because that can come out of relationships that have conflict. And He has called us to make things right. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are all so very fallible. So many times, Lord, I see in my own life and I know that we all here have said things wrong, have done things wrong, have then done things that are sinful, and yet we are blinded by our own pride, desiring to see ourselves in a better light than what truly is. So, Father, humble our hearts and make us humble enough to confess to others, to ask for their forgiveness, that reconciliation might take place and mending of broken relationships. And in all of that, God, we believe you are pleased and you will receive glory in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.